The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, this morning to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. I'm going to read the text of our psalm for our scripture reading before we pray this morning. Psalm 16. A victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delights. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh God, you truly are for us a refuge to whom we run. You are in fact for us the only refuge where we can find true safety. We recognize that you are the God of all creation, the God who has made all things, the God who sustains all things. And the God who is bringing all things to their own culmination according to your plan and according to your time and according to your perfect will. And yet in the midst of all of that, we find ourselves, Lord, as your people. We're people who look to you to help us. People who look to you to preserve us. People who look to you to supply our needs. And you never disappoint You care for us. You sustain us. You provide for the needs of our lives and our families. And you bless us beyond what we could ever hope or imagine, far more than we could ever deserve. And so we do come this morning with grateful hearts, grateful at your provision for our lives, grateful at the abundance of things you have poured out upon us and done for us. It's our joy to sing praise to you. It is our joy to bow our lives before you and confess that you are our God and we are your people. We are not our own. We belong to you. And so we've come into your presence this morning with hearts filled with gratitude and with worship on our lips, offering up to you our words, our songs, our prayers, even our very lives. Because we're yours. Do with us as you will this morning. Lord, we come confessing our sin, realizing that daily we fall short of your glory and your grace. 
We are in daily need of your forgiveness in a multitude of ways. And so we come mindful of that this morning, recognizing our own unholiness, but we come on the authority of your Son, Jesus, who has died in our place, paid for our sin, shed his blood on our behalf, that we might approach you with boldness this morning, that we might confess our sin knowing fully that you will forgive us freely, knowing that you'll hear our prayers, knowing that you'll listen and knowing that you have a desire to meet us in this place. So we pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit this morning, you would enrich us, you would enlarge us, that you would illuminate your Word in our midst, that we might see it and hear it and understand it, be changed by it. This is your time, O God. We are your people, and we've gathered to hear from you. Speak to us, we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. Security. That's a buzzword in our culture these days. You can hardly read the paper without running across the word security. You can hardly watch the news without the word security popping up time and time again in the conversation. You can hardly go through your day without having conversation, without some sort of security being something that's a part of the conversation. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines security as the state of being free from danger or threat. State of being free from danger or threat. When we look around at the world around us, we are acutely mindful of the fact that there are an awful lot of threats that surround us on a regular basis. And those threats that surround us generate within us oftentimes fear and anxiety and worry. And we spend an awful lot of our time and an awful lot of our energy and even our resources working hard to mitigate threats that surround us. Perceived threats, real threats. I think of home security. Hardly a week goes by that I don't get that mail that comes from XYZ Home Security. We'll give you free equipment. If you just pay us every month, we will secure your home. They understand that there's a real threat. A threat to my home, a threat to your home. There are, there are bad people who live around us. People who, given the right opportunity and the right uh, moment, would, if they were unhindered, break into my home and take my things. Therefore, I need to be mindful of home security. And there are people who will provide that for me. There's financial security. That's something that we, as modern folks, are concerned about. We realize the the very fleeting nature of wealth, that it comes, but as quickly as it comes, it can often what? It can often go and fly away from us. And we're very concerned about the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the world around us. We don't know if our health is going to hold out long enough for us to work X number of years. And so we're concerned about our financial security. We want to make sure we have enough income to pay our bills. And we want to make sure that when the time comes that we can't work any longer, that we've stored up enough financial resources to have a a secure future and to be able to, to live and meet our financial requirements of our lives. And so we put our money away into IRAs and we invest in gold and bonds and stocks and retirement accounts. And we do all sorts of other things to secure ourselves against potential future financial threats. 
In fact, when the government years ago wanted to create a a sort of a, a retirement safety net for our older population, what did they name it? Social Security. Security. I'm not sure that anyone feels that that's particularly securing these days, but the name indicates the reality. It was an attempt to mitigate a threat, a financial threat, the threat of not having enough income to survive in older years. There's national security. As a nation, we're very concerned about security, aren't we? We realize that in the world in which we live, there are all sorts of evil actors out there who hate this nation. They work daily to destroy this nation. And if given the means and unhindered access, they would invade, take over, and establish their own rule over the people who live in this country. And because we realize the reality and the serious nature of those kinds of threats, we're constantly, as a nation, working to mitigate those threats. I saw yesterday that we, uh, the U.S. Navy commissioned a brand new uh, aircraft carrier, the USS uh, Gerald Ford. Did anybody see that by chance on TV? Or, or uh, I guess those Navy folks are more interested in that kind of thing. What you might be interested to know is it costs like $13 billion to build. Why would a nation confiscate income from its citizens forcefully and spend $13 billion of those dollars to build such a vessel? The answer is national security. National security. We spend about $700 billion annually out of our annual budget for security as a nation. Security doesn't come cheap. I spent a week, uh, two weeks ago, in Seattle with a Coast Guard unit that had had the awful tragedy of one of their members committing suicide and had the opportunity to minister among those Coast Guardsmen. And the name of that unit is Port Security Unit 313. They guard ports and make sure they're secure. One of the hottest job fields in the world right now is the field of cyber what? Cyber security. Why is cyber security a massive job field? Because all of us use, to some degree or another, what? A computer of some sort. And we realize that there are bad people in the world who know really well how to use computers far better than we do. And they are just looking to find ways to mess things up for us. They come up with nifty little programs called viruses that seek to infect your computer and make it make funny screens when you push the on button and make it do things other than what you tell it to do and make it send all your information to people who you don't want to have it so that they can file tax returns in your name. Yes, I have that T-shirt from this year. We're concerned about cybersecurity. We want to make sure our information is secure, that bad people don't have it and exploit it. And so there's a whole field of, of, uh, uh, of work out there called cybersecurity. Every one of us, for the most part, who has a computer, invests a good 40 bucks of your income every year on some antivirus program for your computer because you wouldn't dream of operating a computer without it, Right? You need it to be secure. There's all sorts of ways in which we're concerned about security. But here's the reality that every one of us at some level understands. No matter how hard we work to secure ourselves on every single front, there is no way that we can possibly mitigate every single threat. Can we? We can't do it. In this life, it's impossible. 
And if we think about those threats that I just mentioned against which we try and secure ourselves, there is an ultimate threat that comes behind all of those things which concerns every human being. It's the threat of death. How do we mitigate that threat? How does one secure himself from all the threats in the world? How does one secure himself from the ultimate threat that sort of looms out there at the end of life? Well, David writes to us a psalm that's about security. It's a psalm that celebrates the reality that this man has found a way to mitigate all of the threats in his life, including the ultimate threat. He's found a way to find for himself utter security. And in finding that, it changed his life. That's what we find in Psalm 16. It begins in verse 1 with a simple statement, a simple request. In fact, it is the only request in the entire psalm. The first two words, he begins the psalm by saying, uh, by saying Preserve me, O God. It's a request for security. God, preserve me, protect me, keep me secure. Now, if we stopped there and we hadn't read the rest of the psalm and we didn't know what it was about, we might think David was concerned about his security. And so this was going to be a song about him praying, God, I'm I'm anxious and I'm nervous. I, I want you to secure me. But as the psalm develops, we find that that's not the case at all. David introduces the psalm by talking about security in the way of a request. But the reality is we find that the man who writes this psalm is a man who has very strong, firm confidence that he is already secure. And the rest of the psalm really is a celebration of that reality. Because when a person comes to that place in life when they don't have to be concerned every day with all of the threats around them because they can rest secure, that has a way of changing life. It has a way of blowing away some of the things that drive us nuts. It has a way of freeing us to be joyful and happy and enjoy our lives. And David was such a man, the one who wrote this psalm. And all of these things that are going to be a part of this psalm sort of come out of the fact that he's found for himself security. He has confidence in the security that he's found. And he tells us in that first uh, statement there exactly where he found that security. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. For in you I take refuge. What's a refuge? Well, a refuge is just simply a safe location, a shelter. David is saying, God, I need security in my life. And I have found that security, and I have found it in you. I've looked all over the place in my life to secure myself against all sorts of threats, and I've never been able to figure it out until now, when I found you, and I ran to you, and I found in you a shelter, a safe place, a place where I'm safe from the threats. They can't touch me. In you, I take refuge. I, I think of, now when, I, when I read that, I think of a hurricane shelter. If, you, if you've lived in South Carolina, coastal South Carolina very long, you've been around for those moments when these storms blow through called hurricanes. And some of these things are pretty devastating. I remember as a teenager, Hurricane Hugo and the devastation that that, that, that uh, caused here in Charleston. Some of you remember it. When hurricanes blow through, that's a serious threat. And oftentimes, if you're in the path of those things, you're concerned about your own physical safety. And if you're not sure that your house is going to be able to stand, you go looking for what? A shelter, a refuge, a safe place, somewhere where you can run and you can hide yourself and know, okay, in this location, I'm safe. 
The hurricane can blow through and it can blow out. But here in this place, I'm going to be taken care of. I don't, I don't have to be afraid for my safety. David writes, God, I'm looking for security. And I found it in you. You are my hurricane shelter. You're the place when the threats come into my life that I run and I cling to. And in you I find security. He realizes that life is unpredictable and it's dangerous and it's filled with foul weather and storms and all sorts of threats. But he has found for himself a place where he has a safe spot. A place that he can run against every threat and find security and find shelter and find safety. He's found it in the Lord. David's two concerns as we walk through this, this psalm are the, the troubles that come from life, the threats in the present, life here and now. And his concern is also about the threat that comes at the end of life, death. And he says to us in this psalm that God is a more than capable source of shelter and security against both fronts. David's going to celebrate the fact that he's not, he's not eaten up with anxiety about the threats in the present. Because he's found a shelter in the Lord. He's going to tell us that he's not anxious. He's not wringing his hands about death that looms on the horizon. Because he's found even against that threat, the Lord is a shelter. A safe place that he can run and find security. The theme that this uh, psalm lays out for us is all throughout the Old Testament. The the theme of, of God's securing of his people. The fact that... Uh, that God reassures them over and over that he will, he will preserve them. He will secure them. If they will run to him, he will care for them. And he will mitigate any threat in their lives. We see it in examples of the prophets, uh, Isaiah 41 and following, verse 10 and following. Fear not, God says. Why should you not be afraid? He says, because I'm with you. You have security. I, I'm with you. Don't, don't, don't just go out there and say fear not because you're super strong or because you're Mr. Spiritual or because you can handle life on your own. Fear not because I'm with you. Because you have a security that's with you. I'm a Navy chaplain in the reserves and um, when I was out a couple weeks ago with this, uh, this unit, one of the things I did with them is they were out doing their, um, their uh, rifle qualifications, you know, shooting at targets. And they kept trying to get me to you know, it was, I guess, exciting to get the chaplain to shoot the gun kind of a game. And I had to keep explaining over and over, they don't let us do that. We're not allowed to touch guns. We're non-combatants by law, and that's a good way to get kicked out of the military uh, for a chaplain is to, you know, start playing around with guns. I mean, my luck, somebody snaps a picture, and it's on YouTube, and there it is. You know, I'm done. Um, as exciting and fun as it looked, you know, to try... Uh, but the reality is we don't carry weapons, so if, when chaplains go out into the, into the, um, uh, to the forward areas with, with troops, regardless of whether it's the Marines, the Army, or whoever, um, they, there's somebody assigned to the chaplain to go with them who does carry weapons and is providing protection for that person uh, out there in dangerous places. And when I read that text, I think of that, fear not, for I'm with you. You've got somebody with you that, that's got your back. 
You've got somebody with you who's going to protect you and take care of you. You don't have to be afraid. And God says, I'm the one who's with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. What is that a picture of when you think when you hear that? I think of a, a, a mom or a dad walking across the street with their little kid, right? What do you do with your kids when you get to a, a street where there's traffic? You tell them, Hold my hand, son, and you, you hold your hand. Why do you want them to hold their hand? Because, well, number one, you want to get them across safely. But for them, that's a source of security. When, when your child is afraid, what does he do or what does she do when she's little? She, she grabs hold of your hand. And that's the image here that God is painting. Look, I'm the one who holds your hand. I'm the one that holds your right hand and gets you where you need to go. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who helps you. I'm your security. I'm in your corner. Psalm 4, excuse me, Isaiah 46, 4. Listen to what he says here. He says, even to your old age, that's not the right one. Um, just listen to me, I'll tell you the right one. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. It's a beautiful promise from the Lord that he will even to gray hairs, right? Some of us, that comes a little earlier than others, but right? Even to that point, even when we get old, God says, I'll carry you and I'll save you. I'll be for you your security. That's what he's saying. And David says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And the rest of this psalm is a psalm that displays what it looks like in a person's life when they run to the Lord and find safety and security in Him. And the way I want to um, sort of move through it this morning is by, by splitting it up into two pieces. The first being sort of characteristics of taking refuge in the Lord. What does it look like to take refuge in the Lord? What does David mean when he says, I... Find refuge in you. What does that process look like? So characteristics of taking refuge in the Lord. And then we'll look at consequences of taking refuge in the Lord. When we do that, what what then happens in our life? Well, How does that change how we live and how we experience the realities around us? And underneath these two headings combined are nine things. And you're thinking, we'll never get to lunch this morning. Uh, Seriously, each one of these could be a sermon in and of itself. I want to just sort of skim the surface for you and and sort of whet your appetite, hopefully, to go back and look at this psalm and think through these things even far more deeply than what we can this morning. But I want to at least uh, paint the the surface picture for you. What are these characteristics of the life that takes refuge in the Lord? What does it look like when someone does that? Well, it begins with a confession of His Lordship over them. To run to the Lord and find refuge in Him is to, is to run to God and to confess that He is Lord over us. And we see that in the very first part of this psalm, verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. It's an exclamation of lordship. It's, an, it's a picture of a, of a master and a servant. It's not some sort of a general belief in God that he's talking about here. David is not just sort of confessing, hey, I believe in God. You and I probably uh, hear this all the time in our world. I know I do, and I'm sure that you do as well, when you talk to people and you begin to explore a little bit about where they are in their, in their faith sort of area of their life. And they say, oh yeah, I, I believe in God. How many, how many of you hear that, right? 
Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. And then when you begin to scratch the surface, you say, well, I want to know a little bit more about what that looks like in your, in your life. And you begin to skim the surface, and you automatically begin to realize, for many people, that that belief in God goes no more than that statement. It goes no deeper than just that statement. I, I believe in God. I mean, I live my life, but I believe in God. Uh, it's just a general statement that I believe that there is someone bigger than me out there somewhere. They look around at the world and they see design and they see the intricacies of, of how things are made and they see how things are operating. And, and at least to some degree in their mind, they realize this can't all be by chance. There must be some God out there. And so they say, I, I believe in God. But it has no bearing on their life. It's just a statement of some general belief. That's not what David is doing here. David says, when I run to the Lord as a refuge, he declares, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Right? You're not just a general God that's out there somewhere. David says, you're my Lord. It is, a, for him, a very personal thing. He doesn't just see the Lord in some general sense, sort of distant and unconcerned. To David, God is a personal being to whom he runs personally and enters into a personal sort of a relationship and submits himself to his rule. Psalm 34, 8 says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? He's good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. To taste something is, is, a, is, is a very intimate, personal sort of a thing. When I taste something, I stick it in my mouth and I taste it, and it becomes a part of who I am. You can no longer separate me from the thing that I've eaten. It just becomes a part of me. It's a personal sort of a connection point. And, and the psalmist is saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Enter into a personal connection with Him. Not just something that's external, but something that is internal and, and very personal. For faith to be real, it has to be personal, not general. And David says, Lord, you are my Lord. You're not just some distant God that I vaguely believe in. You are my Lord, a person to whom I submit myself. And that becomes really the second piece to this, a confession of his lordship and a submission to his control. An interesting observation that you don't catch from the English translation here in the very first two uh, verses of this psalm. If, if you have your Bible, just look down at those verses. It says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And then the second verse, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. So you have the word God, the word Lord, and the word Lord. If you look in verse 2, depending on your translation, you see the word Lord written twice, but you see in one case it's capitalized, and in the other case it's not. What the translators are trying to tell you in using the same word is it's not the same original word. In fact, David uses three different titles for God here in these first two verses. In the first verse, preserve me, O God, he uses the, the Hebrew term El, which is the abbreviation of Elohim, which is simply a, a general statement about the omnipotent, mighty God. Preserve me, O God, almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful God, preserve me. But then in verse 2, he changes and uses the word Jehovah. I say to the Lord, Jehovah. That's the covenant name of God from the Old Testament. It's a, it's, it's a reference to a God who relates personally in covenant with his people. A God who's willing to enter into a saving relationship with his people. And then the, the third word he uses at the end of verse 2, I say to the, Lord, to the Lord, you are my Lord, is the word Adonai. 
which means my sovereign Lord, my king, my master. And what David is doing poetically here is he's using the names of God from the most general to the most personal. Do you see that? He begins by calling out to the omnipotent, mighty God. And then he says, I say to the God, the God uh, Jehovah, who is willing to enter into a covenant relationship with his people in general, you are my personal Adonai, my master, my master. I am in submission to you. It is a declaration of complete submission to God. He's saying, God, when I run to you, what that means is I submit my life completely to you. It's yours. I no longer own it. I no longer claim the title to my own life. I've deeded that over to you. You own me. And I'm in submission to you. My life is not my own. It's yours. I will serve you and not me. I will live as you desire. I belong to you. That's what it looks like to run to the Lord and find a refuge. It's to submit to His rule of your life as your own personal Savior and your own personal Lord. God does not entrust Himself to those who come half-heartedly wanting to retain title to their own lives. But He becomes a security and a refuge to those who will cast everything aside and say, You are my Lord, my Master. I submit myself to You. That's what David did. He goes on to tell us uh, a little further, further down this. He says, I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. David is recognizing that the Lord is his only hope. He said, I'm looking around, and I have no good options around me, Lord. You are the only good that I have. The only good security available to me in my life is you. I have no good apart from that. There is no good resource apart from that. There is no good help apart from you. His only hope was to find refuge in the Lord. He looked externally around himself and he realizes that everything around him is contaminated. There's nothing that's truly good. And the only thing that's good in his life are the things that have come from the Lord. The New Testament echoes that in James 1.17 where James writes, Every good and perfect gift does what? It comes from above. Anything that's good and perfect, it comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. It belonged to him and he's given it to us. But David also looks internally, and he realizes, you know what? I have no hope of securing myself because I am contaminated by my own sinfulness. Psalm 14, just a couple of psalms over. Another psalm of David. David writes in verse 2 and following, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Here's what he finds. They've all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. David looks inside of himself and he says, You know what? I have no hope of securing my future. Particularly against the threat of death. Because I'm a sinful man. And I have no hope beyond the grave. Except that God would secure me. I have no hope. He says, my my, my only hope is you. I have no good apart from you. Apart from you, I have absolutely no help. He looks at his own self and he looks at all of his resources and he realizes his wealth can't secure him. He realizes his own power as king cannot secure him. He realizes internally his own righteousness cannot secure him. He looks around and realizes his possessions cannot secure him. He looks at all of his friends and he realizes his friends cannot secure him. The only hope he has 
is the Lord. And it's to that Lord that he runs and finds a refuge and finds a shelter from the hurricane. And then down uh, verse 8, he says one more thing. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. That's another sort of piece of what a characteristic is of running to the Lord and finding security in Him. It's, it's, it's submitting to, 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 to God in a personal sort of way, submission to His rule and reign in your life, a realization that there is no one else that can provide for you what He can provide for you, and it then is a commitment to look to Him daily. To look to Him daily. And that's what the psalmist writes here. David says, I've set the Lord always before me. I've set Him before me. That is to say, the Lord is always in front of me. I'm always looking at Him. I'm evaluating all of my life through the lens of the Lord, if you will. I uh, am not the best at following directions when I'm driving. Anyone else have that disease? Um, One of the greatest inventions in the world to me is the GPS. Um, And I love... You know, I was in Seattle, I told you a couple weeks ago, and uh, it's sort of a weird place to drive around, especially in the downtown city, and man, I was relying on my GPS. Whatever that woman told me, I did it. I don't care what she told me. If she said spin around three times in the road and go left, I would spin three times and go left because I had no idea where I was. I set that GPS when I'm in behind the wheel. It was always before me, and I went nowhere apart from it telling me where to go. I, look, there were times when I would see signs and I would think, oh, I don't know. Maybe I should go that way. That way looks like the right way. But I'm looking at her and she's saying, nope, you go that way. And I, look, she was always before me. She said, go right. I went right even if left looked better. I didn't trust my own, my own judgment. I didn't trust the, the things that I saw around me. I just trusted that, that woman's voice. Now, I will tell you occasionally she is wrong. She will sometimes navigate you to the backside of an airport somewhere that's nowhere near where you need to be. But regardless, I still trust her. And she is always before me when I'm in an unfamiliar place. And I'm listening to her. And wherever she tells me to go, that's where I'm going to go. And I think that's what David has in mind here when he says, When I run to the Lord as a refuge, I am setting him always before me. He is always in front of me. And it doesn't matter where I think I need to go. I'm listening to his voice. And he's going to tell me where to go. And that's the way I'm going to go. He's just before me. When I'm making decisions, I'm, I'm thinking of those things through the lens of what the Lord would have me to do. He becomes in the controller of my daily life. I want you to think through those characteristics of what it looks like to run to the Lord and find security and refuge. Would you put that little bullet point notes up there for me, David, for that first section, just so we can look at that together? It's to, it's to confess His Lordship. It's to recognize He's our only hope. It's to look to Him daily. That is a, a profile of what it looks like to entrust ourselves into the hands of a mighty God. And to find safety and security in Him. But what happens when we do that? How does that play out in our lives? The rest of the psalm really tells us, at least in David's life, how that played out. And I think it's a template for really how it plays out in everyone's life who finds their security and trust in Him. Who confesses His Lordship, recognizes He's their only hope, and looks to Him daily and trusting their lives to Him. Listen to some of these things and we'll just honestly mention them quickly. Because they're so obvious. We see the first one in the next few verses here. Verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. 
Let me just summarize what David is saying there. He's saying when we run to the Lord and find refuge in Him, our lives are transformed. And one of the evidences of that is we delight in God's people. That's what David is confessing there. A sheer delight in God's people. He calls them excellent ones. He says, he says the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. One of the things that happens when we entrust our lives to our God is He transforms us and He gives with, give, or births within us a love for other people who have done the same thing. He builds within us a kinship with other people who also know and love and trust Him. And we love them and find delight in their presence. Maybe you realize that in your life. Have you ever been to a place that you were unfamiliar or met new people and instantly you knew you were in the presence of somebody who loved the Lord? Because you never talked about it, you didn't ask them, you just knew it, and you were drawn to them? How is that and why is that? It's because there's something supernatural that goes on inside the heart that just lets you know when you're in the presence of one of the excellent ones, right? One of those in whom the Lord delights and in whom you ought to delight as well. That's more obvious with some people than others. And I don't mean that as a slight, I just mean it as the way that it is. But one of the characteristics of having found a refuge in God is a delight in God's people. We love to be around His people. We want to be around His people. We find friendship and joy in its deepest ways and deepest places and its deepest experiences amongst God's people. Because we share a kinship and love of Him with one another. And the corollary to that that David mentions here is... We find ourselves growing more and more uncomfortable investing ourselves around people who don't know him. David talks about the contrast between how he regards God's people and how he regards people who run after other gods. Those are people who don't know the Lord. We don't have time to push all that out this morning. But just simply to say, God's people who find truly refuge in him find delight in being around other people of God. And they find themselves increasingly feeling out of place amongst the lost. New Testament, 1 John 3.14 We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Love the brothers. One of the characteristics of the life that's truly been transformed by finding refuge in God is we love God's people. I'm always troubled by people who tell me, who are quick to tell me that they have placed their faith in God and they are God's people, and yet they can't stand to be around God's people. They can't stand to be a part of the church family. They can't stand to fellowship. They spend all their time, and if they have an opportunity and they have the choice, they're going to spend it with, with people who don't know the Lord. There's something upside down and backwards about that. Because people who truly have found refuge in the Lord find a kinship with other people who have done the same and they're drawn to them. They delight in God's people. It's a sign of a transformed soul. But David says something else. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, all of that is a poetic way of David expressing his own contentment with God's provision which is another characteristic of those who've been transformed by finding in God a refuge, content with his provision. That language may obscure it a bit. He talks about a lot, and he talks about lines that have fallen in pleasant places and a chosen portion and a cup. All of that is, is uh, settlement language from the Old Testament. If you remember when God um, 
granted the Israelites entrance into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, when they got into the land, what was one of the first things they did in the land after they cleared it out? They apportioned it. They, they separated it out into the different tribes. And they said, you know, Levi, this is your, your land. And, and, and the Judah, this is your land. And they apportioned out the, the land. And they, they drew lines, boundary lines, that separated the land into, into areas that each tribe could have. And within each tribe, they separated those even further uh, into, into areas where families could live and so on and so forth. So when he talks about boundary lines and my lot and these kinds of things, it's language from that. What he's really saying is the way life has fallen out for me, God, the way things have fallen out, the way the lines have been drawn for me, it's good. It's good. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. The way that you've made it all work out in my life, Lord, has been good. And I'm content with that. You hold my cup. You're my portion. And I'm content with what you've provided. David did not have a perfect life. He faced all sorts of difficulty. He faced problems. He faced deep griefs, deep sorrows, deep pains. There were times when he had everything. There were times when he lost just about everything. And in the midst of all of that was an underlying sort of contentment that that sort of buoyed his soul. It said, you know what, Lord, in spite of how the circumstances may be blowing at any given moment, the lines have fallen for me in general in good places. You've taken care of me, and I'm content with what I have. Everything in our culture in which you and I live is geared toward birthing and feeding within our souls discontentment. Everything. All of the messages that are coming at us from our culture are driven to create within us discontentment. To make us unhappy with what we have and where we are and to cause us to be lustful of other things, what others have or what we don't have, but we need to go take out a loan to get so that we can be content when we get it. And we get it and we realize that it doesn't make us content either, right? But that's the way that the culture drives us. David says that's not how it is for those who run to the Lord and find a refuge in Him. They are, they're able to look at life, whatever's going on, and they're able to say, you know what, the lines have fallen for me in good places. The Lord has, has been good to me. He's cared for me. And I'm content with what He's given. That's what David is saying here. He's content with God's provision. He goes on to say this. He goes on to say, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also, my heart instructs me. Gives us here another characteristic of those who found refuge in the Lord. They have an appetite for God's counsel. They have an appetite for God's counsel. It's a pretty simple thing. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In, in the night, also, my heart instructs me. Just a little funny note here. Um, the word translated into English, heart, there, is literally the word kidneys. Aren't you glad that they didn't, you know, that when they translated into English, they didn't do that literally? In the night also, my kidneys instruct me. I see all of our older men laughing. Oh, yeah, I know about that. They give you the totally wrong image of what David's talking about here. It's not at all what he's got in mind. He's got in mind the guy who's laying on his bed at night, and he's rattling through the cares and concerns of his life, and in the, the mental exercise of going through those things, he finds the Lord giving him counsel. And showing him the way. Have you ever had that experience in your life? When you've been worked up about things going on? Something happening in life and you're trying to sort it all out. And you lay in your bed at night and you can't just shake it off. And you're thinking through things. And in the midst of that mental, somehow the Lord brings his word to your mind by his spirit. 
And he just shows you the way. And he settles your heart. And he calms your spirit. That's the image that David is saying here. He's saying, you know what? Because I found refuge in the Lord, I, I love the fact that the Lord gives me counsel. I don't have to figure out everything on my own. He has entrusted his word to me. And in his word, he's given me his will. And he's given me all the counsel that I need to be able to navigate my life. And on top of that, he's given me his spirit who applies his word to the particular circumstances of my life at any given moment. And those who have entrusted their lives to the Lord and who found security in Him have an appetite for the Lord's counsel. When life is spinning out of control, they don't run to everybody else in the world to figure out what they think they ought to do. They run to the Lord. And the question that's riding on their minds is, what would the Lord have me do? What is His counsel on the matter? And that becomes the driving force. They have an appetite for His counsel. James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. You want God's counsel? Ask for it, and he gives it. One of the blessings of finding refuge in him. One more thing, confidence in his protection. Because he is at my right hand, David writes, I shall not be shaken. It's a picture of battle. And... and, in David's day, when you went to battle, you fought in pairs at least. And the person on your right hand was the person next to you to protect you and to go into battle with you and to, to cover your back, so to speak. And David says here, because he is at my right hand, because God is the one who's got my back, because God is the one who's fighting next to me, I'll not be shaken. There's nothing that's going to come into my life that's going to throw me completely off kilter because God's fighting my battles for me. I don't have to live in constant fear and anxiety about world events. I don't have to listen to the news and put, turn it off all freaked out about who the next politician is going to be or what the current politician is doing or what's going to happen in Iran or North Korea or anywhere else. I'm not going to let those things shake me. Why? Because the Lord is at my right hand. He's with me. Those things don't have to frighten me. I'm not going to be shaken by my own life events, by things going nuts in my own world, by sickness or disease or loss or pain or disappointment or grief. All of those things are real battles, but the Lord fights with us and for us through them so they don't have to shake us. They don't have to blow us off of our foundation when they come because the Lord's at our right hand. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is in the Exodus and the departure Uh, of the Israelites from Egypt and their arrival at the Red Sea. Do you remember what was going on? Moses leads the people out. He gets them to the edge of the Red Sea, and they get to the sea, and they look back, and all of the the Egyptian army is pursuing them, and they're terrified. They're freaking out. They think that they're going to all die right there by the seashore, and they're screaming and crying and complaining to Moses. Why did you bring us out here? Did you bring us all the way out here just to die out here? We'd have been better off back there. And Moses listened to all that nonsense. And Moses says something remarkable. He's a man who understands what it is to not be shaken by events because the Lord is at his right hand. And only because that was Moses' experience could he say what he says in Exodus 14, 13 and 14 when he says this. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For those Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. It's a poetic way of saying shut up and watch what God's going to do. 
Mind you, at that moment, the sea was still full. But Moses understood, because the Lord is with us, we don't have to be shaken. The people are chasing us and the sea is full. Big deal. The Lord's fighting for us. He'll get us through. And what does the Lord do? He gets them through. Because the Lord is at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. And he says, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That's just another way of saying, have joy in the present. Have joy in the present. Because I found refuge and security in God, I, I can live in joy. My life can be marked by joy, by happiness. When people encounter me, the, 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 the reality of my life, if I've truly found refuge and security in the Lord is, they should walk away from an encounter with me saying, you know, that's a joyful person. That person has got something inside that makes them happy. And it's not related to their circumstances. And it's not related to what's going on in their life. It's something beneath all of that that has birthed within them a genuine joy that sustains them in life. You know people like that, don't you? People who truly walk with the Lord, who truly found security in them, have no trouble being joyful. I'm troubled when I run across people who claim to know the Lord who are constantly lacking joy, constantly angry, constantly upset, constantly complaining, constantly whining, constantly moaning and groaning. That is not the characteristic of the life that's found refuge in the Lord. The last thing he tells us is this. I have hope for the future. My flesh will also dwell secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. It's David's confession. You know what? Not only do I have joy today, but I have full confidence that when I face that ultimate threat at the end of my life, you'll see me through that one too. You're not going to let me rot in some grave. You're going to bring me into your presence, and there is fullness of joy. That beyond that grave on the other side is pure bliss of your unending blessing and presence. It's the hope of heaven. David had no idea how God could do that. No more idea than Moses could have had standing by the Red Sea of how the Lord was going to get him through that one. David never got to see how the Lord was going to pull that off. But we can see it in retrospect. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. And in that sermon, he's preaching the theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he references Psalm 16. These very words from Psalm 16. He says of Jesus, he was crucified and killed. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruptions. corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried in his tomb. His tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. David knew that somehow God was going to solve his ultimate threat, the threat of death. A sinful man going into a dead grave. 
He didn't know how, but he knew that God would deal with that for him somehow. You and I know exactly how God dealt with that for David and for every one of us. He sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life, to be nailed to a Roman cross where he sheds his blood and dies our death and is then buried in a tomb. But David, being a prophet, according to Peter, didn't realize that he was writing it, but what he was writing was really a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus, that God would raise Jesus up from the grave, conquering death, defeating that ultimate threat to us, and would exalt him back to the right hand of the Father in that place where there's fullness of joy. See, you and I know what David didn't know. We know how God was going to make all of that a reality. It's through His Son Jesus and His death on our behalf. And if you're here this morning and you are looking at your own life and you're thinking through all the threats that you face, financial threats, home threats, national threats, the threats of sickness and disease and ultimately the threat of death, how are you going to mitigate those things in your life? You can work your whole life trying to fix all that on your own and you'll never secure yourself. You don't have the ability There's only one who can. It's your Creator against whom you've rebelled. And through the death and resurrection of His very own Son, this morning, you can run to Him. You can confess your sin, express your desperate need to Him. Submit yourself to this Lord, to His Lordship. And say, Lord, from this day forward, I want to set you always before me. And if you do that this morning, you know what you'll find? You'll find a God with open arms who will secure you. Who will supply your every need. And who will transform your heart like He did David's. And transform you into the image of His Son. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for David's pen and the things that he wrote in this psalm. It's a beautiful song. Beautiful song about what it means to find safety and security in You and to live a life of joy and contentment and friendship with other people who love You too. And so many in this room have experienced that already. And so as they read through this psalm, their heart just swells with joy because they know what it is to find security and safety and shelter in You, to abandon every other hope and look to You. And they know what it is to, to not be shaken because You're always at their right hand. But there are those who are with us this morning, I'm sure, Lord, who are just riddled with anxiety and fear and worry because of threats in their life. And they've been trying forever to sort these things out and to mitigate them on their own. I pray, O God, that this morning You would show them Yourself as a God who is the hurricane shelter to whom they can run and find safety and security. If they'll confess their sin, submit to Your rule in their life, and trust themselves to Your Son who died in their place, You'll provide for their every need. I pray that by Your Spirit, You would draw people to Yourself this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.